Hello and welcome to Dealcast, the weekly M&A podcast presented to you by Merger Market and SS&C Intralinks. This is one of a series of special episodes called M&A Tales, where you'll hear about the human side of M&A. These episodes are presented by Rupert Koch, who's Merger Market's Spanish Bureau Chief. In this episode, Rupert speaks to Oriol Pina, who is co-founder of Abac Capital. They talk about the move from large caps to SMEs, the impact of personalities and some of the challenges of doing SME deals. Thanks for the introduction, Juliana. My name is Rupert Koch, and it's a great pleasure to be here with you today uh, for another episode of M&A Tales. We have a very interesting guest today, Oriol Pina, who is the founding partner of Abac Capital. Oriol, welcome to the podcast. Uh, you began your career covering large cap situations, and then you switched to cover small and medium-sized enterprises, which are known as SMEs in the jargon. What do you think of the main differences between the two markets? Uh, good afternoon, Rupert. Uh, thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure uh, being with you uh, this afternoon. Uh, so to your question, uh, it's actually a very different way of doing business. I would say I started my career working at Apex and at Apex we're doing large buyouts. And today I'm the co-founder of a small mid-market fund called Ava Capital, where we invest in SMEs in, in Spain. I would say that the, the main difference is that at Abac we are farmers, at Apex we are hunters. So what, what do I mean by this? Uh, when you are doing uh, large deals, normally uh, there are not that many deals available and they tend to be more intermediated. Uh, so what is very important there is that you differentiate yourself with advisors so that they know uh, very well what is it that you can bring to the table to the company compared to other, other PEs that are also trying to invest their capital so that they call you and when they call you, they call you because uh, they know that you can actually uh, do something for that particular company because it tends to be intermediated. So the intermediate is the one making the decision on who's going to buy the asset. In the case of where I am today at Abac, uh, it's a different ballgame. Basically, here it's more about uh, planting seeds with many small companies that you have thousands of them around the country in Spain, in our case, where you, you go directly to the to the families. Uh, normally, it's an SME market owned by, by families, and there you need to do the whining and, and dining, and you need to do the, the convincing on what is it that you bring to the table directly uh, to the family, and then you need to talk more about the partnership because in most of the cases, it's not a 100% buyout where you're buying 100% and, and the seller is selling uh, all of it, but it's more about establishing a relationship with that family so that you can help them take the company to the next level. It's an interesting uh, distinction between being a hunter and being a farmer. And I guess another way of putting it is that maybe dealing with SMEs is a little bit more artisanal. It's a little bit more handmade than dealing with, with, big, uh, with big companies. Would you agree with that? Definitely. Uh, so we're saying uh, when you do that, the big deals, the big elephant that you're trying to hunt, uh, they are normally intermediated by very highly skilled people. And the process, uh, there is a process that is being run with uh, dates, deadlines, where you need to get the, the work done by a certain date in a certain manner. Uh, so uh, everything is very sophisticated and, and made that you're competing with, with other funds uh, to get that company to hunt that elephant. And, and it can become uh, very stressful uh, trying to get to the finish line in a very uh, concrete manner with uh, limited access to the management team of the company that is being sold. 
and in a in a process where uh, you are not allowed many times to get all the access to information that you you would like to have, and you you need to figure it out in other ways, spending lots of money uh, with consultants and third party people that help you get a view on the asset. Many times it's more an external view on the asset, and with all this intermediation. In in the case of smaller deals, uh, there it's a different story. Uh, there, as I said, it, it's about uh, the information uh, tends to be poor, poorer, because the companies are less sophisticated. But on the contrary, you have because it's poor, you get more access to the the company data, so that you get convinced yourself that you can rely on the information that you're being given. And because it's less intermediated, any times it is yourself that you get access to the company's IT system, and you have to produce the analysis yourself. Uh, in a disintermediated manner. So it needs more uh, crafting. Uh, and as you were saying, it's more an artisan role where you need to have probably a better industry expertise on that particular vertical because uh, many times, as, as you were saying, that the information is is less, is of a lower quality than what one would expect. It's, it's very interesting. Now, my, my impression as an M&A journalist, I've been doing this for a long time, is that when you deal with SMEs, the personality of the founder becomes very important. You get big personalities and they maybe impose themselves on SMEs in a way that doesn't happen quite so much with larger companies that have HR departments and processes and committees. It's harder for that personality to dominate a, a larger organization. Would you say that's the case? A hundred percent. I think that this is one of the main challenges and also the main opportunities that we encounter when we buy a small uh, company, an SME. What happens many times in these companies is that we're dealing with a founder that has created uh, the company and he's the, call it Leo Messi, I'm from Barcelona, or Cristiano Ronaldo of that company. So he's a superstar. He knows the company inside out. Uh, but uh, that comes at the expense of many times not having proper processes and proper systems in place. Uh, so this personality, uh, normally, uh, I would say uh, he probably owns most of the relevant information of that company, for good or bad. That's one element. The other one is that the decision-making of that company, uh, many, many, many ways, goes around this person. So because this person is both the general manager and the owner of the company, he sets the culture of the company and he makes the decisions. Because many of the employees and even many of the managers in, in the company at the end of the day, what they think is, look, it's it's his or her money, so let's let's have him make decisions and not me, because if they, it's it's his or her money, and that's something that uh, I can understand that people behave this way. While when you go to the other end and you are trying to do a large buyout, they are, uh, normally the companies they are owned by several shareholders. Many times it can even be a public company, and there you have a professional management team in place, and you have proper systems and proper processes which is a different uh, ballgame. And they are, uh, the way uh, the culture is set, it's not so much reliant on, dependent on one person, but it's more uh, something that uh, is is decided and it evolves over time. Uh, and it's, uh, I would say, it's the conjunction of different people building the culture. And I guess when the founder leaves, because if you're buying the company and the founder has an exit plan and maybe wants to leave after a few years, do you find that the management finds it hard to step forward and take and take decisions, having got out of the habit of taking decisions? Completely. I think this is one of the main challenges that in the SME market we 
we have is precisely what you were referring to, Roberta. I think that when we buy a company, even if we agree with the founder that he has to stay for some time at the company in a managerial role or as chairman of the company, and even if this, uh, man- this founder keeps a percentage stake of the company, the reality is that when this uh, person uh, steps down from his role as CEO of the company, that leaves a vacuum in terms of uh, management skills in the company. And and that is very difficult to fill with the management team that is already at the company. Because these people, if they've been around in this company for many years, relying in, relying in a way of making decisions that is very different to uh, a multinational, to change that, some people cannot make the transition. So what ends up happening many times is that when a private equity firm gets into an SME, after a few years, you will see that probably one third of the management team have made it and they've made this transition, but one third has not made it. And we need to, we need to change these people. And then there's one third that it depends on the situation. Yeah, that maybe they can go back to university yeah. and do some courses or whatever. Uh, yeah, or it needs a little bit of training and educating and making sure that, because normally these people, they know their business. So it's not that they, uh, they don't know their business. They know the industry very well. They know their job very well. But what many times we see is that they are lacking this ability to make decisions on their own because they haven't been trained to do that and they got used to a different way of running the business because they had this uh, owner that was deciding because it was his money at the end of the day. Now, you've mentioned that you deal with family-owned businesses, with big personalities. I can imagine that some of the stories that you can tell from from having done deals in the segment would be fairly different from what uh, what advisors who used to larger companies would uh, w- would be used to would you would you like to give us some examples of some of the some of the situations you've seen i would say that it's i mean obviously when you work on a transaction there is always uncertainty mm-hmm. about whether a deal will get done or not in the case of the large buyouts normally it's because you're competing with other funds and you have let's say that it's a five uh, that are competing for one asset, so you have, let's say, 20% probability of getting the deal done. In the case of uh, when you are trying to buy an SME, normally you get the deal under exclusivity, which you would think, okay, so if you have the under exclusivity, it's 100% probability of getting the deal done. Well, it's a little bit more complicated because here the chances of you getting the deal done and it doesn't depend so much on other people doing the deal for you, but the, the single fact that the owner changes his mind. And there are situations where uh, it becomes a little bit complicated. And I'll give you, for instance, an, an example. I do remember in one of the first investments we did in our in our fund, we we actually we did sign the deal. And between signing and completion, there were several CPs that need to be uh, uh, accomplished. And we went to the closing. And the day before, uh, the there was an advisor uh, to the seller and called us and said, "Dude, the guy." He's not coming to the closing. And then we said, well, how can that be? You know, he changed his mind. He doesn't want to sell the business. And he came with a check uh, and said, look, I mean, I'm giving you this money, but I don't want to complete because I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. Wow. What do you mean? I mean, we have been negotiating for almost a year and a half. We signed the deal and now you don't want to complete. I said, yes, because I've been thinking uh, these last months since we signed the deal and I don't know what to do with my life. And then uh, imagine there was a room with 50 people and everyone expecting, what do we now do? Even the management team, and it was a buy-in in this case. So the management team, they had already left their jobs because they were joining the company on that particular day and they were starting the new jobs and suddenly they were with no job. So it took uh, seven hours to convince the, the founder and CEO of the company to finally accept uh, completing the deal. It was actually his wife 
that uh, told him a story of what had happened to the family in the past about uh, a father passing away and etc. It was a long story. And in the end, the guy ended up completing the deal. But uh, it was a, an interesting situation. Or oh, I'll give you another one, for instance, which uh, happens to us very often, which is uh, how you approach valuation. So when you're talking to, uh, in, in a large transaction that maybe the subsidiary of a large corp, there is a discussion on numbers. So we're talking numbers, and the guy will be talking about some comps, trading comps, transaction comps. So I think my company is worth 10 times, 9 times, 8 times EBITDA because of this or that. I've been in situations where you ask the guy, so how much do you think your company is worth? And the guy uh, telling me it's worth 15 million. And why 15? Because they have uh, uh, three sons, 5 million each. <laughs> but the, ma say, the maths is impeccable. <laughs> exactly. So yes, it, it's five times three. Okay, fine. So thank God you didn't have four children and, and not three, because then it would be whatever, 20. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, and, the, the psychology, I would say that, and that goes back to your question before, uh, you need to be a little bit, a bit more uh, psychologist than, a, than an, an economist uh, when dealing with these uh, kind of uh, situations. Uh, for instance, uh, it also happens very often to us that we get to the phase of, okay, we have agreed on valuation, we've done the diligence, let's talk about the contract, the SPA. And when you show the to a founder, the SPA, that normally is a thick document um, with 30, 40, 50 pages and with all the warranties and reps, they get scared. And when you, so suddenly they they see that they, have, they are facing lots of risk. So when you're starting to talk about uh, legal risk, tax leak, uh, tax risk, labor risk, uh, whatever, uh, they suddenly say, okay, uh, I'm not selling because I'm taking too much risk. And then uh, for them, maybe it's difficult to understand that you already have this risk. What we're now discussing is who takes this risk for the past, but that's already embedded in your business, so you're already carrying this risk with you. Whereas I guess in your previous life, buying and selling big companies, they've seen these documents a million times before, so it's a bit exactly. much less scary. Exactly, and many times what happens is that, and, and that's an advisor that we always give to, to the founders, is please do hire a good advisor, a good lawyer. Because a problem we have many times is that uh, contrary to the large deals where you have uh, very good lawyers, magic circle lawyers, etc., uh, when you go with small deals, they may then they hire the lawyer that they had all their lives, and this lawyer has never done a, a deal, and that's a problem because then they they see ghosts everywhere uh, in the closet. They, they don't understand why you're asking what you're asking, and they don't understand that what you do in an SPA is you try to okay we. We agree on a price, and then we distribute the risk, the past, and the future. Who takes that risk? Is it you as a seller, or is it me as a buyer? So it's very simple, but sometimes it takes a while to understand it. Yes, from your answer, I'm guessing that education is part of the part of the game as well. That you have to educate the seller in what it means to do a big M and A deal. What is a warranty? Indeed, because many times for, for this seller, it's going to be a once in a lifetime event. So it's not that they are selling the company uh, every other year. While when you go to the very large deal, uh, the parties involved, they've been doing this many, many times. And therefore, they are more literate about what it entails uh, to transact. And therefore, it's a very difficult, different discussion what you have. But it sounds like a fascinating uh, speciality, Oriol, because oh. as, as we've said, it's about families. It's about personal decisions. It's about human beings. It's about difficult decisions. It's about perceptions of risk. And... People quite often have the impression that M&A is boring. It's about numbers. It's about it's about uh, EBITDA ratios. When in reality, nothing could be further from the truth. M&A is a human business. 
I completely agree with you. I think that probably numbers, they make maybe 5 to 10% of what we do. And the rest is about, it's about people, it's about planning the future, forecasting, and seeing how we can do things better and how we help people get the results. Perfect. Thanks, Oriel. It's been a, it's been a great pleasure having you and I wish you um, much continued success with Avad Capital. Thank you for joining Thanks us. Thanks a lot. That was Rupert Koch speaking to Oriel Pinya, who's the co-founder of Abac Capital. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dealcast presented by Merger Market and SS&C Intralinks. Please rate, review and follow the podcast. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or look out for your Merger Market news alert. For more information, have a look at our show notes. Join us again next week.